Hi, I'm Christian Parkinson and this is the Redcoat History Podcast. The podcast for military history geeks like me and people who love their history filled with cordite and glory. Today we have a fantastic episode and one I've been looking forward to for some time. Myself and historian Josh Proven are talking all about Sir Arthur Wellesley, the man some of you may know more by his later title, the Duke of Wellington, probably Britain's greatest ever general. We're going to be looking at his early life, so if you've been following this season of the podcast from the beginning, then you'll recall that we've already discussed his victories at the Battle of Rolisa and Vimeiro. But I wanted to go deeper, to learn more about his background, and to try and understand who he was and where he came from. Josh is a real font of knowledge, and I'd highly recommend visiting his excellent blog, adventuresinhistoryland.com. He's also got a new book out, which I'll share more details about at the end of the interview, so stay tuned for that. So if you are enjoying the Redcoat History podcast, please do subscribe and write a review on your podcasting app. That will really help others to find the show. I feel British military history is something that we should celebrate. And that is my goal here at the podcast, to remember the amazing military achievements of our ancestors. I don't want their memory to ever be forgotten. Anyway, without further ado, let's learn more about Sir Arthur Wellesley and his early life. The, the period we want to cover today is particularly Wellington's early years when he was still Wellesley, or, or Wesley as I believe he was, right, in, in his early years. Um, just, just to give us a brief intro, what's, what's your interest in well, uh, Wellesley? Well, um, in, the, in the broadest sense, where we would call him Wellington, um, and uh, in, it goes back a long way. Um, as far as I can remember, my first memory of the Duke of Wellington is, is Christopher Plummer. Uh, when I begged my dad to let me watch Waterloo when I was... I keep people remembering grown-ups telling me I was too young to watch such a big war movie. Christopher Plummer was just the ideal of a kind of a British general, and it was him I imagined, it was how I imagined Wellington to be. And thereafter, I just sort of enjoyed, as a kid does, this sort of hero. So what I want to do is start with those early years of, of Wellington slash Wellesley, and sort of how, what about his early years do you think shaped him to be the man he, he was to become? I mean, for example, his schooling, his upbringing. What, what do you think helped to shape the man who became arguably Britain's finest ever uh, military leader? Well, his background is, is quite, I'll say, fairly typical of the British officer corps of the late 18th century, early 19th century. He uh, was born into a family of relatively minor nobles, uh, which uh, had their had their title based in Ireland, and for that reason, uh, and because of the association with Ireland, and being English in Ireland, they were this group of the British nobility is is called the Anglo-Irish aristocracy, and there he was born uh, in 1769 uh, to a very large family. Uh, he had several, quite a few other brothers, and I forget the precise number now. It could be as high as seven. And so as a child, he would have had to 
do that thing that younger children do, which is to seek attention where they can find it. And amongst that crowd, it was very difficult because he had quite a few clever brothers, especially his eldest brother, Richard, who was the this, this star of the family at that time. And he idolized Richard and everything he did up to a point was to either make Richard happy or to try and emulate him in a way. And it was kind of difficult because he described himself as a rather dreamy child. And Richard was a very driven man. And this caused the young Arthur, Wesley as he was, because uh, his name changed several times throughout his life, um, to a quite a great deal of unhappiness because he, at that stage, did not perform well academically. And he was noted only for, it's it said he was noted only for his, um, his, his musical skills. He was apparently rather good at playing the violin. And so there is that element to this formation of the man. There's also, usually is cited his mother, who was a very strict mother and wanted her children to excel. And that included what she called, who she called her ugly or awkward boy, Arthur, because she was at a loss to know what to do with him. Um, and again, famously uh, said, I'm hitting you with all the all the, the, the highlights here. Um, <laughs> uh, he is food for powder and nothing more. And He's that what, food for powder and nothing more. Um, which is usually taken to mean he's destined for the army, as so many younger sons were, because is it the, uh, the British officer corps was made up of the majority of them were younger sons of the gentry who either were not going to inherit a title or did not have a uh, basically the ability to make a living except in by service to the crown. And so his mother was very... Uh, tough on him and that obviously had its effect um i think his and and then the and then you get past that and you get to the other woman in his life kitty packnam who he met when he had begun his army career but at that time he didn't wasn't taking it terribly seriously and she is um so she's often cited as the the, what's the word, the instigator, I suppose, or the, the spark that made him commit, commit himself to public service because he asked her brother if he could marry her. And at this time, he was a nobody. And obviously, being a responsible brother, uh, Ned Packenham said no. And he, dramatically speaking, I believe his newest biographer, Rory Moore, dismisses this. But again, the famous story is that he burns his violin and become, starts on the path to becoming a very competent soldier. So I think all these things came together to create a very resilient, a very thoughtful and a quite ambitious person. And the rest developed over time. And the, and the famous quote about Waterloo being won on the playing fields of Eton, uh, do you think he said it? And if so, what was the significance? significance? Ah, yes. Because that's the other thing I left out, of course, is the education part. 
Um, he went to Eton <clears throat> between 1781 and 1784, did not excel, and he was pulled out in 1785 because it was just a waste of money. And his uh, parents, the uh, Earl and Countess of Mornington, which was their title, uh, and I, I believe the country house is the, the country seat is in Dangan in uh, County Meath. Um, and well, because it said he didn't say it because there were, were apparently no formal playing fields in Eton in seven, in that time. And I haven't looked up why it's an anachronism for a while, but much like his other famous saying, um, being born in a stable doesn't make you a horse, um, which was said by a completely different person about him. Um, this was regards people saying he was Irish, is that correct? Yes, that's that's it, yes. But uh, that was said by a completely different uh, person, uh, a gentleman named Dan o Daniel O'Connell, a famous Irish statesman, basically disowning Wellington as an Irishman, rather than him disowning himself as an <laughs> Irishman. Ah, uh, okay. But that's another subject. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's seen as an anachronism. I've never read a book that actually believes he said it, Maybe Elizabeth Longford did, but I don't even think she gave it a lot of credence. Um, but the, I believe it's meant to suggest that the um, the education and the upbringing and the and the that sense of togetherness that you get from uh, that particular type of school experience. Uh, bred within the British officer corps, a kind of never-say-die, high devotion to uh, duty, uh, rugby scrum, rugby team element to the army. Unfortunately, nobody really gives it any credence anymore um, because I, I'm, nobody's particularly sure whether he there were any playing fields at the time he was there. To, for him to reference. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. I think I think we can sweep over that. Then let's uh, let's let's move on to him sort of finishing school and and joining the army. I mean, what's the story behind that? You you, you suggest he was always destined, from what his mother said, to join the army. Was, mm. Do you think he was? Uh, did he join willingly? Was he a, a keen soldier in those early days, or was it something of a fait accompli? Mm. Interesting. Uh, well, after after leaving Eton. Um, he was almost immediately sent to Angers, the, the School of Equitation at Angers in France, um, where he was to finish his education. Now, Angers is actually a famous military college, and, but in those days it was almost a boys' finishing school where you learned to fence, ride, and the art of war, um, and to dance as well. And he had to learn all those things, and he did very well there. And when he came back, his mother was shocked and all her friends were shocked at the surprise in this gawky, awkward boy she had sent off and became came back a very polished gentleman, which is what Angers essentially did. Two boys and actually Napoleon went to that school as well. Not at the same time, I should stress. But should they stress. Did, but well, that, that they would be a great uh, story if there had been schoolmates. <laughs> would have been. Yeah. But I'm sure he would have remembered. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so he came back from Angers, and um, the year after that, 
his brother began laying out funds to buy him a, a commissions in the army. Um, it's never really explored as to whether he was reluctant or not. It would seem he was fairly keen on having something to do. Um, uh, so from 1787 to 1793, his brother Richard basically got him from ensign to lieutenant colonel, um, uh, laying out quite, quite large sums of money. Um, and he went through about six regiments uh, of the line and in the cavalry uh, between that time, uh, eventually landing in the 33rd Regiment of Foot, which is now called the Duke of Wellington's Regiment. And um, it's said that one of the first things he did when he became an ensign was to um, weigh a private soldier with a full pack because he was curious as to how um, how heavy he was in it. Uh, so uh, that's often used to uh, exemplify his, 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 his great intellectual curiosity about soldiering, even if he had not at, at that point really taken it seriously enough to pursue as he would later pursue it. Yeah. Okay, and, and that flip-flopping between regiments, that was purely as a way to move up the ranks as quickly as possible, or was there, is there ever a hint that maybe he wasn't happy in certain regiments, or was it purely just a promotion tool? I believe it was purely a promotion to, uh, tool. I, I think, um, and it was very common for officers, well-connected officers with rich patrons, to be able to do that, because that was um, known as, that was the system. Uh, literally, people referred to it as the system at the time uh, of uh, promotion, officer promotion in the British Army. Actually, sorry, any promotion really past a certain rank had to be bought. It was very old tradition going back to when you had to have an interest in the country to, to sort of serve. Um, and because the aristocracy usually, yeah, mostly the uh, aristocracy back when the army came into being uh, furnished the offices. Um, they had the money to be able to do that. Uh, but that's a huge different subject. No, I don't think he was unhappy in any of the regiments particularly. Um, I don't think he had, despite what he said, I don't think he had a fixed enough interest in the army system and being a professional soldier at that stage to actually... Um, to actually dislike a regiment particularly. Um, uh, so it was, yes, it was really just, just um, what's the word, exigency, I guess, of getting him promoted. Because he, Richard, his, his brother noticed, I guess, from his letters that he, he took to the army. He did like it. He liked, because he'd been to military academy, this seemed like a normal, a normal progression. He enjoyed the, the the officer's mess and drilling his troops and being an officer. Um, and so he was happy to help get him off his mother's hands, I suppose. Uh, Wellesley, as he was at the time, uh, Wesley, Wesley Wellesley, <laughs> Arthur, uh, was uh, interested, was a, was a case of was a, a semi unusual case because of the because he was he had he had the connections uh, and the patrons who had the money, and you needed 
and you needed both of those things to move quickly through the ranks and that was why he was able to do so but a lot of officers who maybe only had the patrons or only had the money um would go slower and so you'd have people his age he was very i've forgotten how old he was precisely when he became a lieutenant colonel but he was very young at the time um i it could have been what would have been he was 40 when he was in in he was 40 in 1809 so by the time he went to india as a as a full colonel he would have been yeah he would have been in his 30s or something like that so he, he rose very fast and and obviously not everybody could do that but it was possible um well moving on then so he's now a lieutenant colonel in the 33rd and i believe his first taste of action is in flanders uh, 1794 um what do we know about his performance in that campaign and how how did this kind of set him up for for future developments do you know Yes, it, it, it can be said very simply, or you can go a little bit deeper into it. The simple answer is that because it went terribly wrong, he learned what not to do. And he actually said a little later in life, I learned what not to do, and that is always something. And uh, it is uh, from, I believe, whenever he appears in that campaign as the as colonel of the commanding officer of the 33rd and it's uh, sometimes debated as to whether he his later his, his later prowess colors his early uh, sort of administrative tactical job as a battalion commander whether that was co- um colored by that and whether it was actually his second command his major who actually guided him in this as his first active service but so uh, but he um he's always seen as very competent he's always seen as doing the right thing showing sound judgment he kept his battalion together which during the retreat um from uh during that during during the, the grand old duke of york coming down the hill um he uh uh kept his battalion together kept it fed kept it under discipline um, and he saw, uh, and, and through that he saw uh, what not to do, and he saw what happens when an army loses uh, logistical support and cohesion. Um, it did not please him at all. He didn't like it at all. And I think that stayed with him as to what happens when bad management at the top, what, yeah, what happens uh, when there is bad management uh, in headquarters, not to be too unfair to the Duke of York, but that's what it seemed to be like to battalion commanders at the lower levels. And he he performed well in action and uh, in manoeuvring his, his troops. I believe he was put in command of a brigade at one point. He was engaged in a particularly in, a, in an action where he, he repulsed a French attack in, in line, which was something he later was famous for advi- getting his troops to do. And so, yes, I think it was a, a good formative experience that ha- he, having survived, was able to apply to his to his later service. So just to sort of recap then, for anyone who kind of doesn't know what we're talking about, essentially this was a, a disastrous campaign in Flanders, wasn't it, against the revolutionary uh, French army? Was it alongside the Russians? Am I, am I right in saying so? 
I do believe so. Oh, I believe it was intended to be alongside the Russians, but the Russians, I don't think they, there wasn't a lot of allied cooperation in the, in the campaign. And um, everything fell apart quite quickly and everybody kind of ended up fighting for themselves. Uh, it wasn't, I, th I don't think it was the first time the Russians and the British tried to act alongside each other. And uh, likewise, the second time, again, it didn't uh, turn out particularly well. And the French revolutionary armies um, did uh, did what they did. They, they came at them with uh, great speed and vigor and revolutionary spirit, and they, um, they chased them off into the sea. So it was a, a lesson hard learned, but at least it was a yeah. lesson nonetheless. As as they it always was. say, it's not a it's not a loss if you learn from it, right? Which he clearly did, um, and I believe so. Then he moved on, and in 1798 changed his name from Wesley to Wellesley, uh, and that was while he was in India. So can you tell us a bit about his his move to India and the subsequent service in India that that sort of set him on the path to greatness? Yes, that is the, that is the theatre in which he made his name. That's where that's where simple old Colonel Arthur Wellesley became Sir Le, uh, Major General Sir Arthur Wellesley. Uh, and again, his brother Richard plays a great big part in this. Uh, he was originally intended to go to um, uh, the West Indies. Think, yeah, the West Indies. Yeah, but a storm drew and drove the ships back, and they were rerouted to uh, India. Uh, and by this point, you have got essentially the 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 almost the the package together, because when he goes out to India, he is an excellent battalion commander. The fact that he's a full colonel is interesting. And he's going out with his battalion because full colonels very rarely actually commanded battalions. Lieutenant colonels did. But he was promoted full colonel just before he went out and he went out. Uh, and there's lots of great stories about him uh, drawing up all these very efficient plans about how to keep the men healthy in the tropics. And he was big on hygiene. Uh, on the ships especially, he had them out airing themselves and uh, having uh, every, every day at least and going through um, a musketry uh, drill on deck and having their bunks washed out every so many days and having fresh, uh, having their clothes laundered every so many days and things like that. Um, and so he gets to uh, India. Uh, I believe he, uh, like, he, like, he goes to uh, Calcutta or Fort, I think he goes to Calcutta first, but yeah, when he arrives in India, um, he, there's a bit of a, there's a tiny little, there's a tiny little gap where it, it, it's not quite sure what he's going to do. His fortunes change dramatically when his brother, who is, who, his brother Richard, who is incredibly well connected with the government, uh, and knows, uh, the Pitt government quite well, uh, and is a is up in the cabinet there. Um, he gets appointed governor general, governor general of what what they what the what the title was was governor general of Fort William, uh, which is in Bengal, Calcutta, and 
that was had recently been made the primary um, the primary presidency of the three presidencies that then existed in India under the auspices of the East India Company, which was um, Bengal, Bombay, and Madras. And uh, that that if you got Governor General of Fort William, you got Governor General of India by basically extension. So his brother Richard is now Governor General of blinking all British territory in, <laughs> in blinking India. Uh, so again, fortune, yeah, fortune uh, and luck has just struck in favour of Colonel Colonel Wellesley, and he's obviously ecstatic about this because uh, it means he's basically he's going to get a job uh, <laughs> uh, doing something. And if Richard Richard Wellesley comes in like a whirlwind, like a glittering whirlwind. He's a very fabulous uh, figure personally when he goes to India, even though his his political actions are highly controversial, not only today, but to lawmakers in London and even the company itself, because uh, nobody in London wanted wars in India. There'd been already ruinous amounts of fighting between the East India Company and the, the what they called the princely states or the country states. Um, and they didn't want any more of it. They wanted somebody to go over there and not rock the boat. Previous to this, there had been very, in India, with the East India Company, there had been a great many wars of expansion um, uh, under governors general like uh, Warren Hastings and uh, famously Warren Hastings, uh, who had the massive trial that just dragged on endlessly uh, and uh, some others who uh, replaced him. And the government in Britain was very interested in trying to get a hold, a firmer hold on the East India Company before uh, it just went completely out of control. Well, because first of all, it was a very, it was a very uh, profitable enterprise for them to be um, getting their mitts on. Uh, but also it was, uh, it was just hard to regulate because it was a bunch of, well, shopkeepers basically uh, running uh, an army that was almost as large as the British army and running a country, well, not all of the country at this point, but a huge swathe of territory. And it was absurd to actual statesmen and lawmakers that a bunch of merchants were actually able to do this. And so there's this war going on about who can who controls the East India Company. But and that's one of the reasons Richard Wellesley is sent over, because he's a he's a government man. He's not a company man. And they think he'll play he'll play the tune of the government. On the other hand, Richard Wellesley gets, uh, meets, um, uh, meets a chap on the way over and um, who is of the opinion that Britain could expand really quickly. And he, 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 he on, on the way over, Richard Wellesley basically comes up with his plan that he will, he will just, he will secure the British interest in India by basically um, absorbing all of its enemies. And that, that brings him into direct, the British East India Company, into direct confrontation with uh, a state in South Central India called Mysore, which has been a thorn in the side of the British for a good decade or two when uh, it became Muslim. 
and uh, under the reign of the uh, brilliant uh, and uh, and mighty Haider Ali, uh, who went who went the rounds like a boxer with uh, General Ayakut, who was one of Clive's uh, cronies. And it's a really epic story, actually, that puts Haider up there with the great some of the greatest generals in history, I think, for his campaign against the British. Uh, in the first and second Mysore and Maratha wars, all of India almost crowds in on the British and are this close to actually kicking them out. But uh, as usual, factions within the Indian states stop that happening. But ever since then, Mysore has been this this sort of Damocles sort of over British possessions because uh, Haider Ali's son Tipu is now uh, Sultan of Mysore. He was, his, his interests were opposed to those of the British. His expansion and his maintenance of his kingdom was in opposition to the interests of the British. And so another war is almost inevitable when Richard Wellesley comes in. And especially because Tipu has been, is always looking around for allies to, to, to um, bolster his position against the British. Uh, and unfortunately, he happens to fix on the French. <laughs> He reached out to the French, he reached out to the Marathas, he reached out to the Afghans, because the Afghans were always trying to raid into India as well at this time, and the British were rather worried about them. But uh, this uh, this allows uh, Richard Wellesley to pounce on Mysore. Fourth Anglo-Mysore war, war erupts, and this is a key moment in, in Wellington's, uh, Wellesley's uh, military career. So part of this campaign sees the storming of this city, uh, Seringapatam, uh, and it's quite a brutal battle. And then the the British soldiers go a bit wild. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. And and uh, how does that affect Wellesley? Uh, and and what influence do you think seeing that sort of breakdown in discipline has on his career? Yeah, well, you can always pick out times in in his life where the the erosion of discipline within the ranks. Uh, has um, scarred him in in some way, uh, in a way that makes him always strive to control control that discipline and hold it hold it steady, so that the troops don't act in 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 brutal ways, especially towards civilians. After an assault which is a very traumatizing thing for soldiers to go through in the 18th century and the 19th century. It's very close quarters, there's no cover, it's, it's, it's pell-mell, it's hand-to-hand combat, it's awful. Um, they just, it often drove them wild with just anger and, uh, and fear, and they just wanted to do horrible things, and it, they felt it was their right to loot as well, once they got in. Uh, because there's a certain amount of disorder is necessary to take a, take a take a breach, basically. Uh, so when they got into Seringapatam, they they uh, get the, all discipline was lost um, in the assaulting parties. They got in, they secured the place. Tipu um, was uh, was sadly uh, it was it was a tragic end for Tipu, who died bravely. Um, withdrawing from the ramparts, trapped inside a gate of the inner city, cut off on both sides, and uh, he died uh, in those confines, uh, buried by uh, by the bodies of his uh, retinue. Um, 
but after the after they secured the place the soldiers got down into the lower town into the civilian areas and they just started looting stuff they're looting and raping and pillaging and this went on for uh, at least a day maybe two i forget the exact amount of time it happened for but it was a typical post-siege sack where the officers lose control of their troops they can't get them back and to a degree they do let them run as well uh, because it's it's seen as a sort of a reward in a way for what they've just had to go through I, I can't I think it's absolutely I think it's absolutely the case that the sack of Seringapatam left an impression on him um, as to what happens again when soldiers are let loose uh, on a civilian population. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that he was never particularly able in the, t in the case of assaults or storms, as, uh, as they were called, to actually make any difference to what happened uh, at Seringapatam. Uh, the record of his sieges where he's had to assault a place um, uh, such as so, uh, Badajoz, Ciudad Rodrigo, um, San Sebastian, all ended this way. And he was powerless to stop it, disciplinarian that he was, uh, in, in spite of that. He was never able to, um, he was never able to, to, to pull his men in once they'd taken a breach. Um, and a sack almost always occurred. But uh, it did, I think, leave a mark, and he, it was never something he liked, and he would all, he, he would try to stop. It was always necessary to regain discipline, is the point. And that's actually what he did at Seringapatam, because the day after the attack, he was actually named commander-in-chief of the city, or, or the guy in charge, commandant of the city. And then, so what did he do uh, then? Is it, is, it, is it true that he uh, oversaw a lot of floggings and hangings to kind of try and reset discipline? I do believe he hanged some some of the men. I forget uh, again whether he whether it was sepoys or British troops that he hanged, but there was definitely there was definitely some capital punishment carried out to basically say, right, you've had your fun now, stop. Um, and actually, that was the way he would do things in this situation ever afterwards. Pretty much after a day or two of letting their energy run out, essentially. Because I think it's good to remember as well that in order to stop the sacking of a city, which is obviously a big, confused mass of buildings that you don't really know, it's a foreign city, um, in, which involves thousands of your own men, well-armed and angry, you're going to have to deploy a division, at least, or a brigade, to get in there and probably fight them a little. And it's a very undesirable thing to do, obviously. So it's actually necessary when troops have got out of hand that way to let them run a day or two. Unfortunately, it's a very cold thing to say. I hate, <laughs> I hate the language that, <laughs> but uh, to let them run and abuse people essentially until they are so drunk or so tired that they're easy to cow back into the ranks. So and that's where the gallows come out, and that's where the floggings come in, basically to say. We can, I can stop you now, so stop. Yeah, makes and, sense. Yeah, so he definitely stopped it when he, as soon as he, he, he acted very quickly at Seringapatam. 
um, it was very necessary, he felt, to act very quickly in that situation because it, he was very conscious in India of um, of the fact that these were not Europeans that he was dealing with. These weren't Christians he was dealing with. And he didn't want that to embed itself in the population that he was going to have to to, to govern. So he acted very quickly at Seringapatam to stop the, 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 the looting. And would you say that in general, um, throughout his whole career, but obviously particularly we're talking about his, his earlier career, sort of pre-Talavera, would you say he had a bit of a reputation as a disciplinarian? Was he, was he a tough cookie? Like, is he a guy you wanted as your commanding officer? Or were you terrified of him? People, were, people found him very reliable and trustworthy. Um, at this stage, people didn't, the soldiers certainly didn't particularly know him very well. Um, if you fast forward to Talivera, after, obviously, he's built up his reputation um, through India and um, early in Portugal, all you get is people saying how, how confident the soldiers are knowing he's in charge. People weren't afraid of him as they were with many of their brigade commanders, such as famously General Crawford or General Picton, uh, people like that. I don't think they were terribly afraid of him, um, but they were wary of him at a certain point as well, because they did know he would hang looters and he would f encourage flogging um, as the case demanded. Um, in India, I'm not quite sure what the common con common thought of him was. His regiment, the 33rd, which would be your best um, place to find an opinion of him, was that he was, again, a capable man and a fair man, but one who would absolutely use corporal punishment to enforce discipline. So he would be known as a flogging officer, essentially, and obvious, and soldiers in those time took note of these sorts of things. Who is a flogging officer? Who isn't? Who's, a, who's an officer who leads from the front? And who's an officer who says, go ahead? And um, Wellington would be described, I think, by the ranks as a flogging officer who said, follow me. And then so after this, after the siege is over and, and things start to calm down a bit, I understand, and this is a bit niche, so we can... We can gloss over it if it's a bit too niche. There was this insurgency by this guy called Dundia. I don't know how you say his surname. War, it looks like. W-A-U-G-H. Yeah. Is after this successful campaign, this sort of anti-insurgency campaign that Wellesley led, is that he, he took on the upkeep of Dundia's son after he'd been killed, after his enemy in this campaign had been killed. He, he, he uh, took it upon himself to look after his son. Is that something you know about? And if so, do you know what the motivation for that was and, and how that progressed? I do know a little. I know the basics of it. It is actually a very fascinating part in his life that probably could use uh, uh, some more examination, actually, that. And it's actually a really good idea for a book, and I'm probably going to note that down now. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, right. So he becomes governor of Seringapatam, and he does an excellent job there. The British have a colourful call it reputation in India but uh, I was talking to uh, Manimug de Sharma uh, two or three days weeks ago and I asked him about this and he says nobody 
in that part of India has any bad memory, um, collective memory, of Wellesley when, as his time as governor, uh, because he respected religions, he restored Tipu's palace, including murals of British defeats. He took care uh, that the harem was uh, respected, and uh, he put back in charge a very capable uh, minister to help him essentially to essentially to govern the city because he knew what he was doing with his okay. Dundiavau or Dundiavuch, I don't know how you pronounce it to be honest either. Dundia. The campaign against Dundia is interesting because it is a full insurgency campaign. And it's this part actually in his life where you see a little bit of Napoleon in Wellington because for the first time he's 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 not only a general he's a ruler in a sense and his state needs to be um, protected uh, he's a very when I say he's like Napoleon he's not a dictator or anything like that he does things very sensibly but I, I mean that from the sense that he here he here has military and civil power and he goes after Duntiawar, and it's a very challenging campaign. It's a very important campaign because he makes connections in the Maratha Empire when he's chasing this guy around, uh, which is important later. Uh, and he, this, he, he, this is where he starts to build his own personal reputation as a general, because he pursues this guy, this, this um, freebooter kind of character who wants to take Mysore for himself. And... It's a, it would be a challenging, it's a challenging thing to, to uh, chase down essentially Guerilla, uh, but he does, and he defeats Duntia and kills him actually in, in battle. And I believe he leads a cavalry charge at one point even uh, in the final battle. Duntia is killed, and amongst the wreckage of his baggage train, um, which, uh, as I say in India, is just huge. It would be a whole city out there. And so when he gets to it, um, he would find he find his household and his 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 harem and uh, as his attendants and things like that and his horses and his son. And he finds his son. And I've never seen a particular reason why, but we should remember that Wellesley, as much as he was a disciplinarian, he was also still, in some sense, a very fragile boy that his um, that his mother and his family knew as uh, as a sort of awkward gawky child who liked to dream daydream and play the violin um, and in in some senses he was very unsuited for the brutality of war he recoiled from it often and he took pity I think that side of his personality took pity on this boy partly because I think he probably felt responsible for the death of the boy's father and paid for his upkeep, almost raised him as his own um, in his education. Um, and I believe there is a letter where he, he praises the boy for being an excellent, uh, just an excellent, uh, just an excellent boy, really, uh, as he grows up. I think he carries on being interested in his life because obviously he doesn't, he doesn't adopt him or anything like that particularly, but he does take care of him. And he, he makes sure he's looked after. And yes, it's a very touching little bit that shows an insight into the other side of Wellington, uh, which is that 
responsibility of a of a of a of a, his actions and his 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 want to try and I don't know make some sort of positive out of, of out of the destruction I, I suppose. So let's move forward then to the second Anglo Maratha War. Um, this was another uh, another conflict where Wellesley really sort of made his name with the Battle of Assai or Assay. I'm not sure exactly how you say it. Can you give us just a, a, a brief overview of what that conflict was and then specifically how Wellesley um, commanded this army in the field and, and had this great victory? Okay. Uh, so in 1802, um, events in the Maratha Empire had um, caused the breakup of that state. Um, the Maratha Empire was the biggest uh, Indian kingdom then challenging the British. It was thought to also be the only one then capable of militarily opposing them. This is because they had an excellent what they called regular corps uh, in the army of uh, Gwalior uh, under the uh, that was created by the um, the, the Raja uh, Mahadaji uh, Shind uh, or Sindhya as the British called him. And these men were an amazingly interesting and amazingly efficient European-style um, army made up of brigades uh, up to uh, army size as well, of many regiments and artillery and cavalry, and they had conquered a great deal of territory. Um, so they were felt to be the last main obstacle to British expansion in India. A civil war had broken out in the Maratha kingdom between their leader, the Peshwa, whose capital was in Pune, and um, his, his, his main supporter, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Raja of, of, of uh, Gwalior, uh, Shind, whose uh, name is uh, Dalit Rao, uh, and another guy called uh, Jasmine Rao uh, Holke. Uh, and these three guys just uh, go at each other uh, for in 1802. And the, the forces of the Peshwa, Bajirao and uh, Shind, uh, um, are defeated at the Battle of Poon. And uh, by uh, forces and forces uh, under Jaswant Rao Holker. And the Peshwa flees to the British um, at Bassin or Bassein. And he, he signs a treaty with them saying, I will do the subsidiary thing if you come and uh, defeat Holker. Well, it's, it, an army is gathered in, in, in Western India. Uh, and it's a, 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 a Western and across India to attack the Maratha uh, Empire, which is a massive space of land uh, comprising the Deccan and also the um, uh, what they call Hindustan, which is up Delhi way. Um, and Wellesley is part of Wellesley is the Wellesley is the spearhead. He 
comes up with a plan because he's organized again a lot of the army and he's actually been what's interesting about a nice little facet here is actually he's one of these he's, he's an interesting guy because he trains he trains his troops like a modern commander would you know how before a mission they, they train specifically for this mission well Wellesley while he was governor of Seringapatam and, and Mysore uh, had a, had a force of troops there. Obviously, they've been seasoned fighting Duntiwa, and what he did was he, well, in anticipation of having to fight the Marathas, because the Marathas heard of this guy who beat Duntiwa, and he knew of them a little, and he figured war with the Marathas was going to come. Um, he was training his troops. He was drilling them so they could march really fast, and they could they could uh, they were all fit and ready. And so he, he, he advised his superiors, I'll take a detachment, forward detachment, and I will, uh, and, and that will restore the Peshwa at Pune. And then we can figure out what to do after that. He didn't, he himself didn't want to do a war of conquest. He wanted to just restore the Peshwa, fall back, and then support the Peshwa as, as needed. Richard Wellesley had different ideas about this, but this was the initial plan. Richard Wellesley's main idea here was not to fight the Marathas. It should be said, yeah, it wasn't actually to go to full war with the Marathas. He wanted to um, make them a dependency. What he wanted was Delhi. He wanted the Sultan in Delhi. And the Marathas controlled the Sultan in Delhi. Uh, and that was Richard's plan. Because if he got the Sultan, then he could become the protector of the Sultan in Delhi, the, the emperor and therefore essentially become the last word in India, which is what technically the Marathas were. Um, and he used the cloak of removing French influence from India again in this, because there was a lot of French mercenaries working for the Marathas. There was a lot of all sorts of mercenaries working for the Marathas, um, Germans, Swiss, English, Scottish, Irish, all sorts of people. Really fascinating subject in itself, the, the Maratha regular corps. So, Wellesley goes up with a detached corps, uh, a de de flying detachment or something like that, they call it. It's not very large. It's somewhere between five and 8,000 men. Um, and they march up through the, through the uh, Western Ghats uh, up to Pune. Uh, which is the traditional capital of the um, Maratha Empire, and the seat of the Peshwa, their leader, Bajirao, and uh, Bajirao II, I should say. Uh, and it's successful. He, in a in a very uh, audacious coup, he might say, he rides ahead, captures the city with his cavalry. It's a lightning march up through difficult terrain. Uh, and he takes the place and he restores the Peshwa. Uh, now, the original objective of this war was obviously to defeat the, the, the rebel, Peshwa's rebel, Jaswant Rao Polke. And he, um, this guy is having none of it. Now, this, this man, Holkar, is one of, another one of these brilliant Indian leaders. He's, he's a, he's a, he's a, kind of foul-mouthed, heavy-drinking, hard-riding, one-eyed son of a, you know. And he 
is it excellent? The, the lady yeah. of the night, is that? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. And he... The guy, actually, I like him already. Yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting guy. Um, uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant character, excellent leader of men. And he commands these uh, massive hordes of, of, of cavalry, and he's an excellent tactician. And he's not going to fight the British on their terms. So he just he just withdraws because the Maratha Empire, as well as being divided, is a desert because of just decades of warfare. And there's no way for him to feed his horses. So he's, he's he withdraws and pretty much leaves Wellesley to it. Now, Wellesley sits around for a while and pretty much finds out that Baji Rao II, the Peshwa, is a difficult guy to deal with because he doesn't have, he just can't supply the British the way that Wellesley wants them to be supplied. And it's a big headache trying to organize an Indian army. Um, his dispatches from this time were just just filled with, oh, when can I get more bullocks? When can I get more grain? Is there enough grass and forage around to, um, it just all stuff like that. And he needs to rest for a while so supplies can catch up. And at the same time, he needs needs to figure out what the other Maratha princes are doing. They call them princes, but they're actually kings. Uh, and these these guys are the, um, obviously, the Sindhya, uh, Daladrao Sindhya, and his ally, who is the, um, I think his name is uh, Ragoji Bonsle of uh, Berar. And those two guys are the two princes that Richard Wellesley thinks are going to do what they're told when the Peshwa is put back in power, because obviously Sindhya is the, technically the Peshwa's ally. But they don't, because they disagree with him running to the British. And they pretty much refuse to talk um, concrete plans with the British. They, you know, The British go up and say, are you going to respect the Treaty of Bassein? Um, and they say, well, uh, we'll have to think about it, uh, sort of thing. And they prevaricate. And eventually, Wellesley himself is given the uh, authority to attack them if they, don't, um, if they don't sign off, pretty much. And they don't, so he does. And that is the beginning of the proper beginning of the Second Maratha War. Um, the objective of Wellesley here is to destroy these two armies. Um, and he does this uh, again uh, with, uh, and he does this, he has, he, his, his basic plan is to use the rivers against them. There's a lot of rivers in this part of the world and he wants them to be constrained by the rivers. So when the rains fall, they'll rise, he can get um, and he has collected at each river that he can a, a depot of basket boats. And uh, he's calling up pontoons from uh, uh, the, from, I believe it's Bombay or Madras. And so he can ford these rivers, but the Marathas won't be able to if they're flooded. So that's his basic plan. And so he goes off in pursuit of them. And he chases them, uh, and he chases them up toward up uh, up north through the Deccan. So that Wellesley's plan is to is that he's going to use the rivers and the ground against them, 
and try and get a battle where he can destroy them. And there are two British armies working here. Uh, there's Wellesley's force and there's Colonel Stevenson's force. And the Marathas get uh, get between them at one point and they try to run for Hyderabad. But um, Wellesley's, as we've said, as I said before, Wellesley's army is very fit. How we get to Asai is that Wellesley comes up with the idea that two columns will move against um, the the direction he feels the Marathas are in. Uh, and between the two of them, one of them will engage the Marathas, the other one will come in and assist them. The other. Uh, they move ahead uh, at a good speed. Wellesley's absolutely delighted that uh, his men are moving about three miles an hour, um, which is quite fast for infantry uh, uh, in India. Uh, and basically, he, he gets to a particular position, and he's all ready to camp for the night. And uh, a messenger comes in saying the Marathas are about 15 miles away. So that's less than 15 miles away. And they're preparing to move out. Now, Mara uh, uh, Wellesley's really wanting to get a battle here. He's been wanting a battle for quite a few, uh, certainly uh, the last month. Um, and this is a good chance for him to, to get one. So he sends a messenger to General uh, Colonel Stevenson, and he, he basically uh, rides off with his cavalry and orders the infantry to hurry uh, up after him as, as fast as possible. This is uh, not at all typical of the Wellington people understand and know, the really careful Wellington who will not uh, risk a battle unless he is sure of its outcome. This is the Wellington, a more audacious Wellington, uh, risk-taker Wellington. This is the Wellington of India, um, and who is all about we must, you must attack, uh, and you must be always be prepared to attack. And he rides forward to uh, uh, a wide, a wide floodplain, um, which is where the battle is going to be fought. Uh, the terrain here is. Uh, what they call in India uh, Doab, or a, uh, a tongue of land between two rivers. Um, that is where the Marathas are. This piece of land is, is, is characterized by a number of small villages, one of which is Asai, uh, which is over against the river Jua, um, and that is the uh, eastmost side of the Doab uh, and uh, a couple of other ones dotted up against the westmost uh, river uh, which is called the Kaitna and the Marathas are, have camped inside this this little this box which is actually quite secure if you think about it it's probably why they chose it and indeed it looks like from Wellesley's position overlooking it from a small rise that they are moving out you know there's a lot of movement over in the camp and so this is, uh, he, he, hurry, he calls back for his infantry to hurry up and get along. And it's a famously brutal pounding battle. It's interesting because he wasn't expecting the Marathas to fight as hard as they did or as skillfully as they did. The Marathas saw the British and they originally formed up looking over the river Kaitna and guarding 
um, a main forward with their guns in the center and their best infantry on the left and their cavalry on the right. And, they, and their camp behind them being uh, basically everybody, everybody's trying to move out. Scindia saw the British army coming up and Wellesley's force, remember, is no more than 9,500 men strong and the Marathas are conservatively estimated to about, be about 40,000 strong. 10,500 of which are regular infantry and he has over 100 guns. And Wellesley does not have anywhere near 100 guns either. Um, it's a massive army. And I, I certainly wouldn't have, I would certainly have thought twice about thinking of attacking it. But Wellesley seems to see the ground. He sees that it's constrained. And he sees that if he can get over the river Kaitne, then his flanks will be secure and he can take them on uh, in a confined space where numbers won't matter as much. He thinks that if he can get over and turn their flank, they won't be able to turn to face him fast enough and he'll be able to roll them up. There's a little ford and he sees down, he sees down uh, to the south that there is a small village. And I've, I'm afraid I've forgotten the name of it at the second, but um, there's a small village down to the south. Uh, and Heath feels that it must it's close enough to the river that there must be a ford there, otherwise it wouldn't exist. And so he sends his engineers out, his engineer officers out, to try and find a, a ford and his scouts out. And they indeed report there's a ford. So at once, he is, his infantry are now up and he has them forced march over this. Marathas see this happening, they start pounding away, a shot begins to fall around the columns, uh, orderly dragoon is beheaded by a shot, um, standing quite close to Wellesley, but they get across and they start to deploy. To Wellesley's surprise, the Marathas not only um, compensate for this, but they do so very efficiently, well not efficiently, but very quickly. The regular brigades, there are three regular brigades or campus as they were called in the Maratha service, uh, just <coughs> form columns and march like a snake to uh, show a front to the British. And before the British are even uh, prepared to advance, the Marathas have formed a line between the two rivers with their left resting on Asai and their right on the Kaitna. Their front line is also now being um, studded with those hundred guns I was talking about earlier, and masses of Maratha cavalry are swirling about in the rear, crossing the Kaitne to try and harass Wellesley's rear. And so he, he has to send his irregular cavalry off that direction, excellent Mysore and allied um, Maratha horse to uh, contain them. And then an unholy bombardment begins from the Maratha guns. Wellesley's, to, I think it's fair to say he's absolutely unprepared for the professionalism of this maneuver. He did not expect them to be able to face him like this. And the biggest problem that now happens is that he's being pounded and his artillery is being knocked out. The bullocks carry, drawing the guns are almost all killed really quickly and the guns can't move. So as his line is preparing to advance, it means they have to advance without artillery support, essentially. And he just orders the advance. His cavalry on his, are in his right rear. He has infantry enough to cover the line of Marathas from the Kaitna to bordering Asai. 
but he doesn't want to go at his side because that's very heavily defended. So he's going to attack its center and right. And he sends his line infantry in against that. He has special orders uh, against that. And there's a, it's just a, such a, it's, it's a titanic battle against the odds. The Marathas put up uh, one hell of a fight. Um, their cavalry um, overrun the pickets of the day, which are on the extreme right, and the 74th foot, and almost wiped them out. Um, and only a, a countercharge by the British and Indian cavalry, of especially the, the I believe it's the uh, 12th or 16th Light Dragoons and the 7th Madras Native Cavalry, uh, rectify the situation, led by Colonel Maxwell. And no, nine, 19th Light Dragoons, 19th Light Dragoons, only a charge by the 19th Light Dragoons and the 7th Native Cavalry, led by Colonel Maxwell, rectify the situation. Um, meanwhile, the British infantry have done what the British infantry do. I should say the British and Presidency infantry, because remember, the majority of troops here are Indian uh, troops from the Madras native uh, infantry. And they force the Marathas back. Now, it's important to note uh, in uh, respect to the Maratha regular corps that they did this at the point of the bayonet, which means they stood and took the British volleys and then were, had to be physically forced away. Uh, and they, but they were eventually forced away. They were eventually broken. There's a lot of toing and froing as well as the tries to con control the situation against massive disparity in numbers. And it said he has to fight the battle all over again because troops have got into his rear and are attacking his guns. So he has to come back from the pursuit of the Marathas who uh, have been broken a second time at the the bank of the Jua, and um, uh, he does eventually win the field, and he does break the Marathas, and he does inflict heavy casualties on them, but he has lost about a third of his men, and he cannot pursue anymore until Colonel Stevenson comes up. This, in a nutshell, probably terribly garbled account of it, um, is, uh, is the Battle of Asai, and it's the battle that makes his name. Um, because it was against such odds. And uh, no few commanders would have chosen, I think, to attack such odds. And certainly when things went wrong, to continue with the attack. Uh, he was very distraught at the losses he sustained, um, but he continued uh, in the days following to pursue uh, uh, a battle with the second Maratha army under the Raja Birah, which he defeated convincingly and without any trouble at the Battle of Alawal. And then he went on to take the fortress of Gawilgur um, up in the mountains, which is another, another feat of arms which uh, rings through India because uh, most Indian princes felt that their capitals were um, invincible. Every, <laughs> every big fortress in India has, was said to have never been taken. And the British took it, uh, Wellesley took it. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote by one of his allies that um, he was an extraordinary fellow. And what can withstand the British, essentially? Um, and that uh, that did break the back of organized Maratha resistance uh, in the Deccan. Interestingly, then, about Asai, is it true that Wellington said in later life that it was the greatest battle he ever fought, even more so than Waterloo? Or, or have I read that wrong? He did say that, yes. Um, 
the thing to remember about that is that Wellington, uh, because he had such a long career, is that he would change it. He would. He he had a handful of battles he thought were his finest, and it changed throughout his life. But by that point, he was quite old. Well, you know, he, he wasn't a soldier anymore. He wasn't going to fight any more battles. And by that point in his life, his his the battles he thought he did best in, his best, finest battles were. He thought Vittoria was his greatest battle. And that's in terms of. Uh, military and, and political um, uh, uh, results. Um, he thought Waterloo was his greatest success politically and in terms of scale. There's no doubt about that. But as Sir Harry Smith said, uh, who you are probably quite familiar uh, uh, from uh, South African history, uh, he said that Waterloo was not a battle of science. It was... Uh, it was just a pounding match, as Wellington said, uh, and it isn't. It is. It is just a battle of attrition. Uh, without its political significance, Waterloo is a very messy thing. Um, and, but the interesting thing about what you just said, uh, the question, is that later on he was asked at a dinner party what he thought his fit, uh, the the best thing he ever did by way of fighting was, so strictly military. And he apparently paused for a moment and then just said, Asai. And uh, it's probably correct that whereas the most complete victory was probably Vittoria, semi-complete because there's a story to that as well. Um, Later in the podcast, that was uh, 1813, I believe, wasn't yes, it? it was, it was. Um, and he defeated King, King Joseph and his, his army. He did. A very... Uh, very important battle that one, but I think in terms of scale, in terms of opposition, numbers, difficulty, um, Asai ranked very highly amongst, in his memory, as uh, not, and also for losses, because he never quite forgot the carnage, I don't think, of the battlefield um, of Asai. And what do you think, having read a lot about the battle? I mean, did he show signs of, of great generalship there or, or was he just lucky? And, and sometimes, you know, luck is an important attribute, as, as Napoleon famously said. Famously said. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, luck is, is, is something to be taken advantage of. Luck in the military context, I think, is your enemy making a mistake, but you have to be able to take advantage of it. And I think Wellington did show great generalship um, at Assai. He, having fixed on a course of action, he saw it through and he made it work. Um, his ability to, um, his ability to sort of, what, what's the word is, um, improvise on the on the on the go at SI was very important. Um, in that, he was forced to to have to actually sit, lead troops back the way they had come at one point to retake a position. And the and, and I think in when it comes down to the actual fighting of the battle, all battles are fairly simplistic in that sense. There's very little a commander can do to alter how the dynamics of how something happens. You know, the, I mean, sometimes if there's a Sometimes if there is a, is a big setback, some of them will grab a colour 
and ride out in front of the men or he'll wave his hat and lead them to a charge or something like that. But I think the best... I think the best measure of his, his generalship can be seen by the accounts left by the officers who were who left records of the battle, um, and they all praise him for his his generalship. And in a 19th century, early, late 19th, 18th century context, that is essentially exposing himself to danger, to be on the spot with his men to be overseeing things at the front, to being to knowing where the danger points are going to be and being there. And he gave orders personally, practically, I think, to every battalion commander uh, when he was riding up and down the, the battlefield. And apparently uh, at the end of the battle, he it, it's, it's shown his 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 the care he took over how the battle progressed is shown by the fact that only two officers of his staff are said to have come out of it without wounds or with the horses they began the day on and um even even wellesley had two horses um uh, knocked from under him and he uh, probably had to actually draw his, I, I would suggest he had to draw his sword in his own defense at one point or another during the fight well, what we'll do then, let's skip forward to the peninsula. Now, what we don't need to do is go into great detail about the battles, because I've covered that in the last two episodes. So we've kind of got into that nitty gritty. But I'll just ask you a few questions sort of around his leadership and the whole convention of Sintra debacle. And, and, and just to hear your thoughts on that, really, and how it affected him and, and so on. So when he was given command of the British Expeditionary Force for Portugal... Um, that wasn't necessarily very popular and people at Horse Guards were keen to send out more senior officers to take over from him. Could you tell me a bit about that and, and why why certain people didn't want him in command? Yeah, um, it's it, that, luckily it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, he, first of all, he was well known in, in India um, for his victories, um, uh, but he wasn't really known in Britain. Those victories didn't carry any weight. He was he was he was ennobled. He was uh, I believe he had made, been made Lieutenant General. Um, so he was Sir Arthur Wellesley, Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Wellesley, I believe, by this time. Um, but they didn't ca- it didn't carry any political weight. Victories in India didn't do that unless you were Sir Robert Clive or whatever. And um, so. He was a he was in in terms of seniority he was a junior general, and he was entrusted with uh, the invasion of Portugal, uh, or sorry the liberation of Portugal I should say. Um, whereas he had been slated to go to South America to aid a rebellion there, um, but when the Portuguese uh, war kicked off, that force was was realigned towards Portugal. So he was the guy on the spot and he did have friends in the government and especially the the foreign office and the uh, the castlery uh, Lord castlery and um, uh, who was who was the who was the and the Portland administration. but um, yeah he was as far as horse guards were concerned, he, 
he didn't have great connections in horse guards. He was quite politically well connected, but he didn't have great connections in horse guards. So that meant he were being a, a very junior uh, lieutenant general. Um, it was seen that for such an important army, a more senior officer should have, should have commanded it. Now they only decided this after he after he'd um, left, and it was only I think when he got to Portugal that uh, obviously uh, is it uh, Harry Burrard and Hugh Dalrymple yeah yeah were were sent out after him, but it's essentially just a case of. It is, it's a case of politics, really, and connections. Horse guards didn't think he had the seniority to command such an important um, command. And obviously the Battle of Relisa went well, and then we had the Battle of Vimeiro. Um Smashing victory, defeated the French. Um, was this the point that people now could see, OK, this guy's the real deal. He's not a sepoy general. He can take on the French and beat them. I think it was yes, especially in terms of the army. We were saying earlier how, you know, what 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 was the perception of him in the army, and it's undoubted undoubtedly Vimiero um, that um, he com comes to the army consciousness as a capable commander who can defeat the French, and um, uh, I think he's always a little bit of a sepoy general, um, a little bit. Obviously Napoleon dismissed him as such. And at Waterloo, supposedly he said, um, "Right, well, now, now uh, Napoleon, now Bonaparte will see how General of Sepoys defends a position." Uh, but uh, and it's interesting as well that at this time he he was still in India mode. If you think about the campaign, it's offensive, isn't it? He allows the French to attack him, but he does move against them, and that's his, that's India in his head still. Still a big influence, that campaign. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. And then at the end of the Battle of Vimeiro, as I covered in one of the episodes of the podcast recently, was this, was this uh, convention of Sintra, where the French basically negotiated uh, to be evacuated on, on board British boats, take their belongings and their weaponry with them. And uh, Wellesley was uh, one of the uh, senior generals involved in that in that agreement, how badly did that affect his career, or, or or did it? Well, it could have been disastrous, really, um, because he injudiciously did sign the convention, and the press at the time, you know, focused in on this. And there's a, there's that funny little rhyme of a brave Sir Arthur, whose whose uh, whose career. Uh, started so well and ended so ill. Um, somewhere of the opinion it was over for him because of the of the scandal of not only letting the French go but transporting them home. And uh, Wellesley never well, Wellesley obviously wasn't the guy in charge. He put his pen to paper essentially because he was asked to um, as a witness. I think it is a little. It is a little baffling as to why he was asked to sign it at all, because the two senior generals technically should have been enough. But yeah, he, they were. They got. Um, I think. I think there are. I'm almost certain. Sorry that uh, people like uh, 
uh, Dr. Jacqueline Wright knows the ins and outs of the Convention of Sintra better than I do, but um, it could have been disastrous for him. Like I said before, he was well connected politically. Uh, his, uh, so his two, his two, um, his two, two things he had going for him after this, after this, uh, this big upset was that he was well connected politically, or well enough, and he uh, didn't technically do anything wrong uh, because he was an officer under orders, essentially. So it wasn't his fault, and there's no evidence to suggest he would have ever. Um, signed such a ridiculous thing on his own merits. I think actually there's probably a little bit of angst or um, uh, thumbing his nose at the two generals that had stopped him gaining a total victory by signing this document in a way, you know, um, just to reinforce the th reinforce the idea that none of this is my fault. I'd have had I'd have been in Madrid by now. Um, <laughs> Or something like that, and uh, but so in a sense he was lucky, but he wasn't. Uh, as we can see, the judicial process would exonerate him uh, simply because he did not do anything wrong. It could not be proved that he did do anything wrong. But politically speaking, this did dent him, despite his connections, because there was murmurs when. Um, when he was, you know, going back to uh, Portugal, about whether the disgrace of Sintra, uh, of having to be having to answer for himself and being associated with such an infamous um, uh, debacle, uh, excluded him from the option of command. So, was there a debate at the time as to whether he should return to take over after the? Uh... You know, after the Karuna camp, Karuna campaign, and so on, were, were, was he never not on the cards for that? I mean, how did that come about that he was sent back to command the forces in Portugal? I don't think it was a foregone conclusion that he would be sent back. Um, he himself, I'm not sure if he was entirely certain whether he would be able to re retain the command. Um, and I think his contacts in the Portland administration. Um, are key in the fact that he did because his supporters said that he is the only general that we have right now that has that would appear to have the reputation and the skill to do what we need him to do he wrote a memorandum uh, to make sure that he hedged his bets he he, he wrote a memorandum uh, basically saying why you could defend portugal because Sir John Moore had said that it was impossible to defend Portugal. And the opposition uh, said that uh, it was also impossible and useless to defend Portugal. He said, of course, that a single British brigade in Portugal would ensure that the French could not just overrun it. And he also argued that it's absurd to say, they say that you can't defend Portugal. It's eminently defensible and we can do it. And so he laid out, as it was his, as was his want, a very detailed memorandum which he sent to the government uh, about how he intended to do this. And mostly on the strength of that and the fact that he did do the right things and he did have now a reputation of defeating the French, he just skimmed um, the skimmed past being excluded. 
I think there was probably more of a chance that the British would just pull out of Portugal rather than not send him if they stayed. So the important thing was to keep the army in Portugal so he could retain the command. But there was definitely a wobbly moment because of Sintra um, that, and obviously Corona, Corona and um, what was going on in Spain at the time uh, that suggested it wasn't worth the effort. And if it, and the, a slighter a slighter argument that said that being as he was essentially disgraced, well, according to the opposition. Um, that he had no right to command. Well, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that chat with Josh as much as I did. He's a great bloke and incredibly knowledgeable. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, he has a new book out covering the British in Japan between 1854 and 1868. It's called Wild East and is available from Font Hill Media. Hopefully this isn't the last time that he and I chat on the podcast. Anyway, I think that's more than enough of me for today, so please check out my website, redcoathistory.com, and join my mailing list. I can keep you up to date with new articles, podcasts, and books. Until then, keep your sabres sharp and be ready for a swift return to the battlefield. Next month, we head back to Portugal, just in time to give the French another good thrashing. I'll see you there.